Welcome to Safer Roads by Protective Insurance. Expertise to help you protect your fleet. Hello, and welcome back to Safer Roads, presented by Protective Insurance. On this show, we sit down with experts from Protective to dive into the information they've gathered working as dedicated members of the transportation community over the last 100 years. I'm Rudy Sallow. I'm a lawyer in a large U.S. law firm where I advise on financing infrastructure and transportation systems throughout the United States. I'm also a Forbes.com transportation contributor, public speaker, law professor, and podcaster. And today we wrap up our four-part series on medical financing. Once again to discuss is Senior Vice President of Claims for Protective Insurance, Nathan Lundquist, and Executive Vice President of Claims for Protective Insurance, Jeremy Goldstein. If you missed the last episode, we highly suggest you go back and listen to it because in it, we discussed how medical financing can lead to a nuclear verdict and how medical financing differs from litigation financing. On today's episode, we are continuing to take a closer look at medical financing as Nathan, Jeremy, and I explore Protective's unique history with the issue. We recap our previous discussions, touch on the impact that fraudulent claims have on the industry, what companies can do to protect themselves, and much more. There's no doubt that there are legitimate accidents and that people do get injured. Those injured parties should absolutely receive care. We're not questioning that in any way, shape, or form. But we also know that... Not all accidents are accidental. For example, there is the well-documented fraud scheme from Louisiana in which at least 36 individuals have pled guilty. Nathan, Jeremy, what can companies do before something happens to protect themselves from fraudulent claims such as these? Is there like technology that can assist or specific processes or training? What can companies do? The biggest thing that a company can do really is be aware of the realities that are out there, right? And specifically, gather the facts, train claims organizations as to what to look for. And there's specialty organizations within most claims departments that deal simply with fraud, right? Here are the red flags, here's how you investigate, that kind of thing. But what is important is when an accident does happen, is it's fully investigated and that any red flags that are there are hunted down. And like you said, either it's a legitimate accident or sometimes it's not. And I will say that the majority of the time when we see accidents that come through our claims department, they are completely legitimate. It's just that there are some bad actors out there that set things up in such a way to pursue fraud. So just being prepared and knowing that it's there. Yeah. So Rudy, you asked about technology, right? Yes. A lot of the accidents that are part of that fraud ring are the swoop and squatch, right? They come around and then stop right in front of the truck. In those instances, camera technology is crucial, which is, to Jeremy's point, also generally true for all accidents, not just fraudulent accidents, but I think most people would agree that trucks today are as safe as they've ever been, right? With cameras, collision avoidance, braking, along with the electronic logs for driver hours. So utilizing that technology will certainly help minimize exposure, right? So I think it's important to ensure we're not conflating two ideas. One of those is there are accidents for which we are liable. There are accidents for which we are not, right? And so the 
technology should help reduce accidents, but in all scenarios, right? It's liability being disputed or not, right? So the cameras will show, in theory, what happened. And so that should help reduce the exposure on accidents for which trucks are not liable. But there are other pieces too. There are verdicts reported on cases where I think most folks in the industry would say there's not liability on the truck. So that then shifts over to the safety program of the trucking company and ensuring adequate safety practices that are appropriately documented, followed up on, and enforced. And I think the third piece probably branches over to the broker liability section, right? So it's not just having the technology on the truck or a safe driving program that's enforced, but ensuring when you are brokering those loads that you're brokering them to safe independent contractors that have sort of similar philosophies on safety and technology on the trucks. Does protective insurance, I don't even know if you legally can require it, but do you give breaks for trucks that do have those cameras? Like if you have a camera, like your premium would go down or something. I'm just curious about how do you get that message across to have the cameras on there? Well, I think there's different ways to do that. And there's different regulations in terms of your filed rates and what you're allowed to do and that kind of thing. I think that one of the best things to do is to sort of make your case to these potential insureds and the insureds that you already have, that these cameras do help, right? And that we've seen reductions in the amount of accidents or the amount of claim payments that go out when we do have cameras on that. So it's sort of in addition to training internally people within the claims department, it's also training and letting the trucking fleets and the individual truckers know that this is going to help you out. This isn't Big Brother you know, coming down on you somehow. It's not an invasion of your privacy. It's there to sort of make everything more safe. And safety translates into dollars pretty quickly in this industry. So typically folks are pretty receptive. I think one of the challenges, and this is kind of beyond what we've been talking about before, is that what do you do with all that data that's out there with trucks? What do you do with all that video? How long do you keep that video? When does it start recycling itself? What do you do with all those other data points on a truck? There's so much now in terms of recording of when the brakes were hit, how hard, you know, was there swerving before, all that kind of stuff. So I think the challenge now is to try to figure out, okay, you've got all this potential safety information that's being generated. How do we translate that into usable material, not just for a claim, but also for training your drivers and just moving your business forward? Yeah, for sure. And obviously, with all that data and all the data privacy issues and the state law issues, you got to be careful navigating that. What many people don't realize is how sophisticated some of these stage accident fraud schemes are. Do you mind talking a little bit about some of the complex operations you have observed? Something that's really blown you away that that listeners should be made aware of? They are certainly sophisticated, right? You have multiple vehicles, one guy gets hit and then another car pulls up and offloads three or four people into that car, gets the driver of the impacted car out of there, right? Because you don't want a lot of repeat losses with the same driver. And so there is a coordination about them. I don't know that I would call them incredibly sophisticated, but they're definitely well-coordinated and planned. And it goes, it's not just the accident, right? It also involves some lawyers, on the plaintiff side and some medical providers, right? So it's a coordinated effort 
then maybe that's where I would allocate some sophistication to it beyond what we normally see. And I think that's probably what was ultimately the downfall of it all is the number of actors that had to be incorporated into it. You're specifically speaking to the Louisiana incident that I had referenced in the last question. Yeah. I think that the exposure of the Louisiana case is sort of bringing light to a lot of the ins and outs of what's actually happening in, in some of this. The investigation is, has come a long way. They put a lot of effort into getting where they are and certainly the indictments that are coming out. I think that we've always known that there was fraud there. I think what we're learning more about is the ins and outs of how it's happening and who's involved and, and how big it is. And, and the reality is, and the kind of the shocking reality is, is that there are people who are willing to take these risks getting hit by a truck, right, for some reward. And the reward has to be big enough for people to actually do it, which tells you there's a lot of dollars that have been dedicated to this. I think what we're, as people in the insurance industry, are hopeful for is, is that now the ball seems to be rolling in a positive direction in terms of the investigation and the prosecutions. And not only will you see things in Louisiana, but hopefully other states and jurisdictions will follow suit and be able to crack the code that's out there. If a truck does get involved in an accident, fraud or no fraud or anything, what can they do after the fact to protect themselves from a possible fraud claim? I think the best thing to do is make sure that they report, to be observant at the scene, make sure that the police are aware, make sure that the police respond, understanding that, wait a minute, I just saw three people get into that car who weren't there. I think that just sort of a detailing of the facts, making sure that you're aware of the environment and reporting it, being open and honest with the investigators, I think is really important. And call that thing in to your dispatcher and make sure that they understand what's going on. I think that the always having a process and following the process is probably the most important things to do at the accident scene. I mean, there's reasons why there are certain steps that are put into place when an accident happens. This is who you call. This is the order in which you do. This is what you record or not record or whatever. It's important to do the same thing every time to make sure. And let's keep in mind that these are <laughs> these are big events, right? People who get into accidents, fraud or not, it's a significant thing that has just happened and people's minds go in different places. A lot of adrenaline that's running through people and just sort of keeping the script and making sure that you follow the procedure is the most important. Makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. What is Protective doing to help educate their customers about the issues surrounding nuclear verdicts, medical financing, all the things that we've been talking about? Yeah. So I think it's just education, whether that's making sure that the, the issues are elevated at various conferences with our self-insured clients. Yeah. I think that there's no shortage of information out there on nuclear verdicts, right? That is a hot topic. Lots of people have heard about it. Pretty much every trucking conference that's out there, it's front and center, as it should be, right? There are big dollars. You see $150 million, $650 million verdicts, that kind of thing. That gets people's attention. We've talked a little bit before about it, but our focus has been the medical financing piece that was really sort of five years ago, this dark 
shadow. We didn't really understand what was going on and made it a priority. And Nathan just has really dove in and started understanding things. It takes a while, right, to get all this information through subpoenas and discovery and everything else. And now to get to your question, Rudy, what are we doing about it? Nathan sort of gives four, five, six presentations a year to different entities, whether it's the DRI or whether it's different trucking organizations or our own insureds. The other thing that we do is we try to educate our reinsurance partners. And insurers have reinsurers where we lay off some of the risk because they have a whole nother audience of lots of other insurance companies that can listen to this. We say, hey, are you seeing this? This is medical finance. It's cropping up in these states and these are the players. You should really get to know about this. Well, everybody's interested because nobody wants to overpay on claims and that kind of thing. And so just spreading the message as much as we can. We're not going to solve the problem for everybody, but we try to bring as much awareness to the issue as we can. Makes a lot of sense. In years past, truckers were not always, let's say, portrayed in the best light in pop culture, especially in movies. Notwithstanding one of my favorites, Smokey and the Bandit, which I still say is a classic. Then in 2020, when the pandemic first had us all at home and hoarding toilet paper, truckers in the trucking industry were seen as the heroes keeping necessities available to the public. Does that change in perception help with tamping down the size of awards by chance? Or or does the publicity afforded the few really bad accidents continue to hurt everyone involved in the industry? I think that a theory that I had during the pandemic was that the image of a truck driver, sort of a lone wolf on the road and that kind of thing, almost sometimes portrayed as caricatures, right, could be changed because these people doing essential services and really providing goods that we needed. So there was certainly a temporary change in that perception. I think that the trucking industry has taken on a little bit more of that, and they've certainly done that through recruiting efforts and all kinds of things. But I'm not sure that that issue is what's driving the nuclear verdicts. I think that what we've seen is, you may have heard about the reptile theory and that kind of stuff. They're really going after the motor carriers, the big motor carriers, rather than the individual drivers. So it's not Bob who turned left and caused this terrible accident and Bob's a terrible person. The theories are more, should have had better safety procedures. They should have not let Bob drive because Bob was diabetic. All of these things. I mean, it's really blaming the big company and the big pocket rather than the individual drivers. And we've actually seen plaintiff's attorneys not even want to bring the case against the driver, but simply drop the driver out of the lawsuit and pursue only the trucking company for that reason, because they don't want any sympathy for the driver who may have caused a loss. They just want the big, bad trucking company to be sitting in the defendant's seat. Makes sense, right? I mean, people in the jury might have relatives that are truck drivers or that are in this industry. So you want to eliminate that sympathy. So yeah, no, I I understand that strategy as a lawyer, although I don't do that type of law. The only thing I would add to that is around the reputation of the driver, how they're perceived in the industry is I think most of the jury consultant research would support the position that any gain in general perception of drivers as a result of their actions during the pandemic has dissipated. I think most people would agree that was, you sort of had this little bell curve, right? But now we're at the back end of that. The, the second piece on drivers generally and corporations, furthering Jeremy's point, a number of the large verdicts that we see 
the commercial truck driver is portrayed as sympathetic by the plaintiff's bar. And it's not the driver's fault, to Jeremy's point. It's it's the corporate truck company who put profits over people or profits over safety. And it's not Bob's fault that he was driving that truck. It's really the, the truck company's fault that they put him an unqualified person or a tired person or whatever the facts support as a theory, uh, but behind the wheel, right? So that also has the impact of sort of taking the overarching reputation of commercial truck drivers almost out of the picture, right? And then they get to focus back on sort of general corporate anger. Yeah. I mean, and on that point, have you seen instances where a judge or, or anyone else involved in a case automatically blame the driver before seeing any evidence? Um, not sort of explicitly, right? We would never know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we shouldn't. You shouldn't know that. Yeah. You know, maybe yeah. after a trial, somebody told you something. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I haven't seen any sort of explicit view of that, but you know, the sort of general perception in the general population, I think is that if there's an accident, what the plaintiff's bar likes to capitalize on is that the assumption is that the truck is at fault. Yeah. Right. Okay. You just play on that assumption that it, well, it has to be the bigger vehicle that it was a fault. You know, they didn't leave enough space to stop 80,000 pounds. Therefore, they reared it. And th- those accidents certainly do happen. Right. But, but so do the accidents as we see every day we get on the interstate of the cars that are, they don't want to get behind the truck merging on. So they accelerate up and cut in front. Right. Oh, I'm guilty of that. Uh, totally, man. Me and my wife. It's like, whoa, okay, I'm the passes. <laughs> I, I was too until I started working here. <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll change. You know, maybe you, maybe you guys will be saving me, and I could be saving some other trucks. So it sounds like the prevailing sentiment is that it's the biggest vehicle, but or is it the biggest vehicle, or is it the vehicle with the largest wallet behind the vehicle? Those aren't necessarily independent, right? But if there are multiple commercial vehicles involved, which we see, it's sort of natural to want to lean towards a liability picture for the bigger pocket, certainly in catastrophic losses. If you have somebody that's a a paraplegic or a quadriplegic, and it's somebody with minimum limits or a million dollars or even $5 million at play, and there's a tower with another party that was involved in the accident at some capacity that has 25 to 50 million, you're in an effort to ensure protection of the injured plaintiff as a lawyer for that party, you're going to be inclined, I think, to, to push the liability picture over towards the tower. Yeah, plaintiff's attorneys know what they're doing and they follow the money, right? They follow the pockets. You know, you will never drive down a major interstate and see a billboard that says, have you been injured by a golf cart, right? Not, not yet, not yet. I, there's a lot of golf carts where I live. I mean, you know, there's, maybe, maybe, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe. I'll let you know, I'll let you know. Well, I th- only if they're insured with million dollar or $5 million policies will you start seeing the billboards, right? <laughs> So certainly well known that trucks that are operating on interstates need to carry a, a certain minimum that's a, of insurance that's a lot higher than a private passenger vehicle. And so from the plaintiff's attorney point of view, they're going to build their case as if the truck was the one that was at fault. And certainly, like Nathan said, uh, if there's multiple commercial vehicles, the one with the biggest pocket is probably going to get the case built against them 
the most or the theories are going to come. So I, I think that it's absolutely a function of how big the pocket can be in terms of, of how you're going to see a case prosecuted. That makes a lot of sense. Going back to what Nathan and I were, okay, I'm a regular driver as opposed to a truck driver. And so I really do want to be a better driver. So like, are there things that I or other regular drivers can do to avoid an accident with a large truck? I'm thinking about like the crazy traffic we see during rush hour, the things I see like cutting in front of a semi, which look, I'm guilty of. We all are. Is it just a matter of me not being an idiot behind the wheel or what can I do to be better? So I, 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 it's not rocket science, right? And it's everything that we know we're not supposed to do, right? Like make sure you leave enough distance before you come in front of a truck. Don't drive in the blind spots of a truck. Put your cell phone down, right? It's just in the, in the moment when you're like, I'm running 10 minutes late and I don't want to be behind that truck as they were John because that's cost me three seconds or something. Right. It, it's just maintaining cognizance of that. Jeremy, any suggestions for this idiot? Uh, <laughs> no, I I fully trust your driving ability. I think that uh, you're probably an excellent driver, but I think that the common sense thing is there. And I think there's a, there should also be a recognition that those professional truck drivers are professional drivers, right? They drive a whole lot more than me and you, right? They're, this is what they're doing for six, seven, eight hours a day. They're good. They know what they're doing. You don't have to be in fear every time you see a truck that they're going to run you over. It's the amount of miles versus the amount of accidents. Truck drivers are very safe. So I think trust them, do what you're supposed to do, follow the law, obviously, and stay out of those blind spots and give yourself plenty of time. Listen in driver's ed, I think is the best thing. It's really good advice. I, I appreciate <laughs> it. I'm going to, maybe I should go back to driver's ed or pay attention when my kids do it. This was uh, an enlightening conversation. I feel smarter and less fearful of trucks after this discussion. That's going to do it for our series on medical financing. Thanks again to Nathan and Jeremy for joining us and discussing why medical financing means so much to Protective and talking about the impact that fraudulent claims can have. If you haven't subscribed, take some time to do so now so you don't miss another edition of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review and rate the show. I'm Rudy Sallow, and this has been Safer Roads by Protective Insurance. Protective Insurance.